Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off. Joining me, as always, my co-host, Steve Ovens. Welcome in, sir. Good evening, sir. How are you? I've had I've had a great week. I uh, we were talking a little bit before the show. I've I I have a text editor. I've used Sublime Text for a while, but I've recently switched over to VS Codium. And just having the folder tree along the side has revolutionized my life, Steve. <laughs> well, because the back end is all Markdown files or text files or whatever they happen to be, and. But I have all of the fancy GUI clickiness of a thing to organize and manage them. I mean, I, lots of Red Hatters are are pretty heavily invested in VS Code because of the way that the overall industry has gone in terms of supporting. So, yeah, a bunch of us use Codium or Code. It depends. So, so I, I mean... Part of it is when you have the the developer workflow, everybody, all the developers want to work off of Git or Git workflows. And so they're making copies of files on their computer and then working, manipulating them and then sending them back up. And for the business side, the sales side, um, they're doing everything with C file and syncing files back and forth. And, hey, did you see the latest sales proposal? Yeah, I took a look at that and I got it over to Jim and he signed off on it. And yeah, we're ready to go with the purchase request and all that kind of stuff. And what I found, VS Codium is like, the nice middle ground because I can play in the GitLab sandbox and all of my stuff is in one application, one place, and I can play in all the sales stuff and all my stuff is still in one place and in one application. And it just kind of seems like a seamless way. It feels like a really cool new tool in my toolbox. Let me ask you a question related to tooling. I only tangentially, but uh, one of the things that I've been kind of working through personally is uh, they talk about, imposter syndrome. And I don't think that that's Mm. exactly what I'm working through, but more um, when I feel like I should have a level of knowledge on a product or a thing that that most of the community is interacting with, and I go to play with it or whatever, and I just have a terrible time because I can't understand it or I'm trying to rush Mm -hmm. through. Uh, Do you ever get uh, a sense of defeat or feeling defeated when, when you are kind of encountering a series of these things all the time. The worst is when you have, especially so when I have somebody, especially when I have somebody that escalates a ticket to me and they're like, I don't know what to do. The worst, the worst feeling in the world is to look back at them and be, and go, yeah, me either. I don't know either. Like, it's like now what? Uh, so no, that happens all the time. I, I guess let me try this on. We're only, we can only the technology space is so large and so vast that there's no way that you or I are ever going to know everything about everything. It's a challenge to know enough about all of the various sandboxes that we can play in them enough to solve the problems for people or at least get them connected with the people that can solve their problems. Is it realistic that 
we're going to that to have set the expectation that we're going to from time to time come across stuff that we just hey, we have no real idea how to deal with that. I've never experienced that before. And when I did try to dig into it, it was uh, it was a pretty disastrous experience. It's it's a challenge, especially when you're an architect where people expect because of the moniker that that, you know, all of the bits that you may touch, like, you know, storage and logging and monitoring and, you know, all of these bits that come together because, you know, you should. You're the architect. You should know. Like, I can know how things connect together and not actually be able to work them. But that's not necessarily the expectation. So when you sit down to try and get a better understanding of it, I've I've been struggling the last week or two with hitting the keyboard and then just not being successful. And that that has been kind of getting me down. So I'm, I'm hoping that uh, answering some questions this week will help me, I uh, guess, regain some of my confidence. Okay. Well, in that vein, how's this for a dovetail? I, I had a friend that reached out to me with a question and you might actually know the answer. So this is one of those things where I was like, hey, man, I just don't have any idea. I've not dug into that before. So it's a home assistant question. So he has a quick set lock with five button codes and Z-Wave. And that's all connected to Home Assistant. But he was looking at an add-on called Keymaster. But when he installed it, two things happened. First of all, he hit the he had the keyboard smashing the keyboard syndrome because it didn't work right. And maybe maybe we can fix that, or maybe we know somebody that can fix that. The second problem is it created like a bazillion entries. And that was very frustrated uh, with him. And so he was asking me, Hey, have you worked with pairing uh, locks to Home Assistant? And if so, have you ever used Keymaster, heard of Keymaster? So I haven't used Keymaster. Um, I know that the locks use Secure Z-Wave, um, and that's a thing. So there's there's a completely different uh, set of troubleshooting when something is encrypted versus not. So the, by default, um, Home Assistant and Z-Wave JS, which is the current thing that it's trying to use, will try and pair um, unencrypted, and that's fine for like, 95% of the things, because once your Z-Wave is paired, it's not like someone is going to take the effort to break in and figure out what my, you know, my water sensor is is doing. Right. When it's your locks, it it steps it up a lot. And you can have problems with your, your Z-Wave stick. So the thing that is receiving the controller, whatever is talking to Home Assistant on your behalf. So it can be a problem, a generational problem, where if the stick is too old and something is too new, it can't establish that that communication link. Okay. It's it's really hard to say from that description because um, having him say that it created a whole bunch of stuff in Home Assistant, I don't even know what that means without looking at it. Entries. So if you go under the entities, it, what he's saying is it it populated a bunch of entries and kind of cluttered up his, his Home Assistant. Well, I guess it's only cluttered if you actually are going manually searching for something. Like if you're doing automations or even just populating Lovelace dashboard, you just kind of type and things will autofill for you. So mm. I pretty much don't go into the entities ever because I hooked it up to Unify and everything <laughs> everything on my network that ever hits my network is inside of Home Assistant. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> like, But the good news about that is when you want to reference one of those things you can talk to them or at least know that they exist and then make decisions based off of that. Exactly. But why would I go in and actually go look at the entities? Like that's not the way that you're, if you're actually using home assistant as an assistant for your home, 
presumably you're going to have enough things that you're not going to interact with the entities one at a time. Like that's, it's kind of like having Ansible, but instead of actually using the power of Ansible, just running a bunch of shell scripts, like you're using it to call shell, you can do that, but that's not probably the, the best use of your time. You're not taking advantage of the tools that God gave you, so to speak. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, hey, Steve, I have an idea. Uh, we want to talk about IoT and home assistant and automation and all of the things. Let's start with Sean. Sean wrote, writes in and he says, I left my garage door open again. This is a Linux show, right? We talk about open source. Okay. We're just talking yeah. about his garage. Anyway, <laughs> I left my garage door open again. I'm looking for a do-it-yourself garage door detector to show when it opens. In looking, I found this, and he links to davidhunt.ie. I probably might go with a bot product, and I want to integrate a water leak detector under the sink, toilets, dishwasher, and near the washing machine. They have a cheap-ish Wi-Fi device, and some are not on Wi-Fi, and that just makes makes it sound like they use them for basements and sump pumps. I would love to find out who's using Citadel and the average cost to run one on something like Linode or DigitalOcean, and he links to Citadel. It's time to explain again in your office and your home choices for wiki pages and storage backups and associated costs. Thanks, Sean. So there's a couple things here. I guess we'll break them down one by one. So, Steve, I seem to remember you having a very similar issue to Sean and his garage door. Yep. Uh, I've had plenty of times where, so we just leave our garage door open. Like in, in my town, it is completely normal to, to drive down the street and everybody sits in their garage or just leaves their garage doors open. Um, and so that's fine, except when you go in at night and you know, you want to go to bed or whatever. And I had contact sensors which is what I was using, which if you go on the internet, everybody says, oh, just put contact sensors, except if you ever reboot Home Assistant, the contact sensors don't re-report their, um, their status. And while you could have it try to remember, there are issues with setting the, if, if you're doing it over MQTT, setting the, um, the MQTT retain flag. So there are issues associated with that. So what would happen would be, um, I had a bedtime routine where it would close the garage doors if it thought that they were open, but that fails because if I have two garage doors and one of them's used all the time, so I've never had the problem where that one gets opened or closed um, erroneously because the contact sensor is constantly going on that one. But the other one that the kids use, it may stay open or stay closed for long periods of time. And so the contact sensor never updates itself. So what I did, what that ended up triggering was the, I would have a false state. And so the door would open when it should be closed or whatever it might be in the reverse state. So I heated the outside because I have a heated garage multiple nights this year uh, before I come on, came on this solution. Uh, I got a D1 mini. So he mentions a DIY garage door detector. So a D1 mini or an ESP8266 uh, or an ESP32. These are little Wi-Fi chips that, that have pinouts on them that you can connect other sensors to. There's a sensor out there called HCSR04. And what this does is it's a sonic sensor that just basically sends a sonic signal and then measures the amount of time that the signal takes to return to the device. And I mounted this on the ceiling and it points down so that when the garage door is open, the signal comes back to the HRS, the, the sonic device really quickly. And when it's closed, it takes longer period of time. 
And since that is an active check, like I have it pinging every 30 seconds or something like that. Mm -hmm. Now what I have is if the garage door is open, turn off the heater. That way, at the very least, if I meant to leave the garage door open, like I'm taking the garbage out or whatever, I'm not heating the outside. So that's what I would do for the DIY uh, door opener. So your neighbors probably aren't going to appreciate that because now they're not getting the outdoor ambient temperature is going to drop back to 30 below. So <laughs> it kind of makes you a jerk, but I get what you're going for. Let me ask you this, Steve. What if you put two sets of closed contacts, one where the door is closed and another set where the door was open and... No, but I guess it would. But again, they wouldn't report, I suppose. The door would yeah. have to change status at least once for Home Assistant to sync up, so to speak. Exactly. Contact sensors in the way that it uh, currently works inside of most automations is they trigger when an event has happened. It's not an act of polling to see whether the read switch is open or closed. It's, you know, did I get an event? And the event, the event happens when the electrical signal is allowed to travel or not allowed to travel anymore because there's a... So if you can think of a reed switch kind of like a little drawbridge and there's a magnet and when the magnet comes over the drawbridge, it lifts it open and then the contact sensor doesn't allow electricity to flow. And so the, that's how the system knows. Like if my signal stops making that loop, then the contact sensor is closed and send off a signal. And it's the same thing if the, the magnet goes away, the contact sensor drops down and the electricity flows through the loop again. Um, and so it's more... Um, did I get a change of state? And that is that is traditionally what contact sensors are measuring inside of automations is a change of state as opposed to is the current flowing or not flowing anymore. All right. Well, let's move on to Sean's second problem. His second problem, he says, I probably might go with a store-bought product, but I want to integrate a water leak detector under the sinks, toilets, dishwasher, and near the washing machine. Well, they have cheapish Wi-Fi devices that are not that are not Wi-Fi at all. It just make it sound like they use them for basement and sump pumps. And he links to a Moan smart leak detector from Home Depot. Thoughts on detecting water leaks? So you can do a DIY. So that I've I've linked in the show notes to my friends over at cloudfree.shop who have all of these things that I'm talking about. Uh, you can also get them on Amazon or whatever. Um, you can make a DIY leak sensor yourself with an ESP32 and some components, but there's also an Akara Zigbee water leak sensor. And essentially what it is, is it has um, metal on the bottom and on as feet. And when it gets placed in water, the one that I have at least is completely waterproof. So you could chuck it in the tub if you just were testing it, for example. Um, but basically when those feet detect water, so the change in signal, it basically sends a little electrical pulses out the feet. And when it gets detects water there, then it knows it has a leak and sends off. And so I like these guys because they're low, uh, they're low battery. They, you can toss them anywhere. Like I said, they're waterproof as opposed to the DIY. Um, the Moen stuff is okay. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just that with my penchant for trying to keep things off of the cloud, I'm more likely to build something or, uh, buy something that I can control locally. A hundred percent. I'll I'll give a, a plug. This isn't quite as do-it-yourself-ish, but one option you might consider is using something from Honeywell. So Honeywell primarily makes stuff for security systems, but the nice thing about tying them to Home Assistant is that basically all of their products function on an open-closed-circuit loop. So kind of like Steve was just talking about reed switches, 
it's the same concept, except in the case of the way that the Honeywell water leak sensor specifically works is there's a little wire. And if it detects water uh, across the two uh, feeds of the wire, um, then it closes a, a, a circuit and sends a signal. Um, and so advantages there are if you have a Honeywell uh, security system, and it may be under a number of different names like ADT uses Honeywell hardware. They just put their own sticker on it. Um, so it's entirely possible that you have uh, a Honeywell system. And if you do, you can just buy that add-on module and then tie it into your Vista 20 or whatever panel you have and tie that panel into Home Assistant. For his third problem, he says, I would love to find out who is using Citadel and the average cost to run it on Linode or DigitalOcean per year. Time to, uh, and then we'll talk, I guess, about storage and associated costs. So thoughts on Citadel? I've never run it. I definitely took a look at it before the show. It's essentially uh, an all-in-one sort of solution for email collaboration group where blah de blah de blah I ran Zimbra mm. um, on a, a $10 DigitalOcean droplet for literally years, um, although I only served my immediate family, so it wasn't like I had tons of uh, clients or family members on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was fine. This this looks fine. It's all 100% open source or so they claim. Do you think it um, looks fine? I mean, I think it looks terrible for the UI. But I mean, in terms of functionality, a lot of times people that are doing these things are not trying to go and get, you know, hey, look at look at this, my Mac buddies and all of our fancy applications. Like right. that's not usually who you're competing with here. Fair. I just, I look at it like, so first of all, the the screenshots itself of the app, like you have not used it, but I, I, I did poke around on, on their website. The screenshots look like they're straight out of the 90s. And then to complement the screenshots that are straight out of the 90s, if you scroll down far enough, they have a link to a really old version of KDE Contact and even better, a really old version of Evolution and then a really old version, like maybe the first version of Microsoft Outlook. And all three of those things made me wonder, like, how long has this project been around? How long will it be around? And would you, I don't know, would you, if you were looking for a collaborative suite, is this what you'd go with? Nope. Uh, I came across this, like I said, when I was kind of poking around for things a decade ago. I believe, I want to say Citadel has actually been around, because it's various components, uh, I believe Citadel tracks itself back to the 90s. Um, so I think you, you pegged it right on. I don't need anything to look super fancy, but I definitely didn't like the look of this. And so if I don't like the look of something, I'm less likely to use it and then care for it. And then it's a waste of time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. My thought is if, if you have, uh, if, if there is, if we're not keeping up with the UI, I just wonder what the longevity of a, of a project is. So I guess the short answer to your question is neither one of us has used it. So we couldn't tell you really what the cost or what the advantages or disadvantages are to setting that up and using it. If you're looking for a collaborative suite, um, what do you think of Zimbra? If somebody's looking for one today, like I said, that's what I used. I liked it. Um, it's not got a super fantastic UI, but it's not terrible. Like it, it's definitely functional. It's a little bit heavy because it's Java-based, um, so I couldn't run it on a five-dollar droplet. I had to bump it up to ten. And if I was going to, if I was actually going to be making heavy use of it, I'd probably need to go up another tier. To be honest with you, 
Have you, I know you run your an own cloud instance. Have you used any of the collaborative features? Mm, calendar and stuff like that. No, because I, because I've been, it was own cloud and now it's next cloud since before I was married long time now. Okay. So I, I think I would start with something like a next cloud and see if how far that gets you with your, with your collaboration needs. And I mean, I'm not sure if this second part of the question is where he says time to explain your office and in-home choices for a wiki page and storage backup. Is he talking? Is he is that tied to the Citadel question or is that something separate? I I assumed it's something separate. Um, I I think we can just kind of skim over that because we've we've talked about this a ton and we may eventually do like a a backup chat or we could even do a backup chat today if we have if we have time and you have inclination so i don't think we'll go too much into depth into that section okay so uh rapid fire what would you use for a for a wiki system i use wiki js if i want an open source and i am currently using confluence in parallel because i don't care what people say i like confluence would you just set confluence up again from scratch if you had to do it over or given the fact that it's kind of a a going away product that you You'd go with something else today. No, I'd go with WikiJS today. All right. Uh, we'll have links for you, Sean, in the show notes. You can find those at podcast.asknoahshow.com and check that out. Our second email comes in from Jeremy. Jeremy writes in and says, photo duplicate app. Hi there. I'm looking for any Linux tools to find and delete duplicate photos via a hash in a folder. Ideally, something with a UI. I'd rather not have to write out a script to do this. Any suggestions? So... Uh, the only one there, there are a few front ends out there that if you search this, you're going to see photo rec. Basically, this is the go to thing. There have been other other ones. Our friends at uh, JB, Jupiter Broadcasting, have tackled a few of these in the past. Um, but the kind of the go to is photo rec. I've used photo rec to recover files. I guess I I had not used it for duplicates before. Yeah, Um I've also seen so because it's a suite, it's not just the photo rec um, binary. Mm-hmm. There, the there's a whole package there. There's there's another one too that escapes me um, that I use for duplication for a while, but uh, fdupe fdupe is what it was called. Okay. So sleuth in the chat room recommends PhotoPrism. You can learn more at PhotoPrism.app, but it is an AI powered app for browsing, organizing, and sharing your photo collections. And makes use of all the latest technologies to tag and find pictures automatically without getting in your way. You can run it at home on a private server, or they have a cloud version. Could potentially be interested in that for just kind of a generic photo thing. Our third email comes in from Ashley. Ashley writes in and says, Yo, Noah, long time, no chat. I'm very far behind Ask Noah Q, as you call it, regarding Chaz's next, uh, next cloud app versus the app problem discussed in episode 266 i ran into something similar with my own cloud web versus the app the problem i ran into was the app did not recognize the ssl cert that my own cloud was presenting my browser was expecting it because i was able to add it to the whitelist long story short we can control the trusted sites and certs for our browser but we can't always control the trusted certs for certain apps hope this helps later bud ashley guess that's really more of a, a follow-up than any specific question. Our fourth email comes in uh, from an anonymous sender. And the anonymous sender says, Hi, Noah, I have a problem with accessing my running Docker 
on my PC when I'm connected to work with a VPN. I'm running Ubuntu. Running Docker F uh, EX on port 3000, so I cannot see it on my browser. But once I disconnected from my VPN, I can see it on the browser. In Cisco, I have chosen LAN access in the GUI of the Cisco client, but that does not work. Is there a solution to see my Docker in the browser when the VPN is connected? I can't see the problem if I use Windows or Mac OS with the same VPN client. My route table uh, is as follows when I'm connected with the VM with the VPN on Ubuntu. Many thanks. And then he gives his kernel IP routing table. Uh, Steve, thoughts on this one? The only thing that jumped out at me is in his routing table, he's got the same um, uh, IP range for both Docker Zero and CS. I don't know what CS co ton zero is but they're using the same um the same ip range there with the same subnet you know what i wonder if i wonder if that's his vpn tunnel network and i wonder if his vpn tunnel network is the same ip scheme as his docker network that would that would explain why it doesn't work when he's through vpn i i thought of that as well um i wasn't it's hard to diagnose just from this especially because he says it didn't have the same problem with um mm. with mac or linux but we don't really know like it's hard to say he could be running docker locally um or not it's it's really hard to say there's there's not enough information to go on here um this is something that is really hard to troubleshoot over email i think yeah maybe you can write back in with uh with some more information we can uh, we can dig in a little bit further or give us a call and we can hash it out on the air. Our fifth email comes in from Brad. Brad writes in and says, Hi, Noah and Steve. Thanks for taking the time to answer my question on your show last Tuesday. I'm going to investigate the feasibility of ZFS Send, and it seems to be the simplest, most straightforward approach. Noah, you commented that you're unsure if I'd actually gotten TrueNAS Scale installed on my QNAP. I would like you to know that I did, in fact, get QNAP. TrueNAS scale installed on my QNAP. My QNAP is an older model, a TS-451 with 8 gigabytes of RAM and a Celeron processor, and it's reached end of life. I cannot say whether this would work for other models. In order to install TrueNAS on the device, I had to first disassemble it, remove the 512 meg flash memory boot module that's connected to the USB header on the motherboard. I then plugged in a keyboard and connected it to my monitor as an onboard HDMI port. Since TrueNAS strongly advises against installing the product on a USB thumb drive, I decided to use a SATA SSD that I put into the USB 3 enclosure. I then placed the TrueNAS install image onto a flash drive, connected everything together, powered up the QDAP. After entering the BIOS, modifying the boot order, I was able to boot into the installer and perform a TrueNAS installation as directed. TrueNAS has enabled me to squeeze even more life out of a product that is no longer supported by the manufacturer. And given that the recent spite of ransomware attacks targeting QNAP, Synology, and other closed-source NAS devices, I feel that security posture has been improved. I'm chalking this one up to another victory for open source. Thanks again, Brad. So a couple things there. Uh, right off the bat, that alone for me, Steve, would cement purchasing a QNAP over like a Synology if I wanted a NAS. We use the yeah. Synologies pretty extensively for their surveillance station package, and I, I, to this day, would tell you that no better solution exists if you want a good, solid web app and a good, solid mobile app for doing security cameras. Surveillance station has it dialed in. They just they, they do, and it works with every manufacturer of camera we've thrown at it because it's just ONVIF compliant, and so that that's really great. Oftentimes, I will get 
the, either the techs that work for me or customers or somebody else going, hey, so if I have that Synology and it's a NAS, couldn't I use it for XYZ? And thus far, I've always told them, no, I wouldn't do that. If you want to have a NAS, go spin up a TrueNAS box or go purchase a TrueNAS box and, and do that. I have to tell you, if I was looking for a box and I wanted a store-built NAS, the fact that you can install your own operating system on the QNAP, and that's absolutely true with the TrueNAS Core as well, of course, but TrueNAS Mini, excuse me, but the fact that you can install the, your own operating system on here and you're not just tied to, like in Synology's case, the DSM, that's a huge upsell. I've seen other users report this as well. Um, you need to be, I would say this would be one of those things that you do your research if this was a critical buying facet for you because uh, lots of times things like this get closed down or it's either intentional or just because they rev the the hardware version and the way that you were doing it no longer functions. So it'd be one of those things that I would I would probably not be in the leading edge for this. I'd be kind of hanging back and I'd buy a previous generation just to make sure that it worked. Absolutely. Our pick of the week this week is Swaks. S W A K S. So our IS, our local ISP here in town. Uh, made a change. They 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 were previously telling their customers that hey, you can use our SMTP server to send uh, email from, and so a large amount of our clients decided, well, you know what, we'll do with that. We'll put it into our our office copy machine, and then uh, when everybody wants to send, when somebody wants to scan something and they want it to show up in their email box, they just put it on the flatbed scanner, type in their email address, and away she goes, and and magically it arrives. So this morning we get into work. And open up the help desk and tickets start flooding in from, hey, there's these, uh, our copiers aren't working. We can't, we can't send these things in. So the first guy goes out to the site and literally while he's on site working on this problem, I get another call to another site of exact same issue. And turns out they had shut that SMTP service off today and we found out about it. And so we started digging in, like, how do you, how do you troubleshoot SMTP problems. Well, Swax is a featureful, flexible, scriptable, transaction-oriented SMTP test tool written and maintained by John Jetmore. It's free and licensed under the the GNU GPL version too. So it has SMTP extensions that include TLS, authentication, pipelining, proxy, PRDR, and xClient. Protocols include SMTP, eSMTP, and LMTP. Transports include Unix domain sockets, internet domain sockets, IPv4 and IPv6, and pipes to spawn processes. It's completely scriptable, configurable, and has options for specifications via environment variables, configuring files, and command lines. So short, uh, the short and skinny on how to use this thing is you download the tool, you run it, you give it an email address that you're sending to an SMTP server, and it spits back a whole bunch of information on what that SMTP server is doing, and is it authenticating, is it not authenticating, does the server even respond, is a port open, all of those things. Uh, just a super cool open source tool for troubleshooting SMTP servers. Have you, uh, do you do everything in the web browser, or do you still use a mail client? I have not used a mail client since I worked at a place that required me to interact with Exchange. I wonder if that's not going to become the the norm where people just do everything in the web browser and then stuff like this kind of kind of becomes irrelevant. But I've never really seen the need. Like, so first of all, I like evolution. I do not like Thunderbird. I'm sorry that burns a lot of people. Um, but aside from that, I haven't really needed to um, get involved with, with a full flat client because 
honestly, the GNOME calendar has gotten really good um, and it plugs into everything I need. So I use the calendar that's plugged into the desktop and I don't need a fat mail client for any particular reason because I don't need to back up my, my own mail by pulling it down from an SMTP server. So I've just not seen the purpose of having a flat file. Yeah, that's fair. I guess for me, it's really about the ability to work offline. So there'll frequently be times I'm either on a flight or I'm in a car or some other place. I don't have internet. Um, sometimes it's out of sight and we're doing a, a new deployment and the internet guys are not there yet. And the ability to, you know, I'll pull my email before I get there. And as I'm going through it and responding to things or composing emails, and then when I get back to the internet, it all kind of goes out. It's very Palm OS-isk, but works for me. I use the opportunity to just not like, hey, it didn't have internet. That's the excuse. <laughs> I wasn't connected. Jeez, you're no fun, Steve. <laughs> Our gadget of the week is aria-net.org. So this is something that I stumbled onto uh, from a blog post on jmp.chat, and it blew me away. So the, I, I, a little bit of setup here. The reason and the way that Federation works, typically, if you're on a server, Steve's on a server, and I'm on the same server, I can reference Steve, and Steve references no one because we're both on the same server. We both know about each other, and everything works just fine in PG. The problem becomes when Steve moves over to his own server, and I am on my own server, now we have a problem because... First of all, what if my server has a Steve and his server has a Steve? Secondly, how do I know about Steve's server? And so the very high-level overview of Federation is Federation takes the server component of that into play. And so we have a user and then we have a server. Now, what is really cool about open source uh, Federation is because this concept is well understood and because the different services are willing to work with each other, we can fairly trivially tie one federated service to another. Enter the Bifrost Bridge. The Bifrost Bridge is a, a bridge that bridges two federated services together. So in the case of aria-net.org, what they're doing is they're bridging Matrix and XMPP. I'll get to why that's super exciting in just a second. So in from the uh, from the matrix side, you can send a message to their to their server. So the server is colon aria dash net dot org is their matrix server. And you specify a user and an XMPP domain. And their server then hands it off to their XMPP server, which then in turn federates out to whatever XMPP server you specified the domain and then the user. And that user receives the message that you sent from Matrix. Or you can go the other way. You specify a username and a domain at aria-net.org, which is their XMPP server. And it goes to Matrix and says, okay, I'm going to send to this user colon this domain and is able to. Uh, is able to bridge that seamlessly. Now, why am I so excited that we can bridge two federated messaging protocols together? I'll tell you why. JMP.chat, which we've talked about on the show before, the only thing that they require when you go to sign up for a phone number is what username do you want the messages delivered to? And you specify that username, which based on our new understanding of ARIA-net, we can specify a matrix username or a XMPP username. And when we do that, you'll get a message from the JMP bot and the bot just says, hey, you wanted to buy this number? 
Would you like to pay for it? Here is how you can pay for it. You can pay for it in cryptocurrency. You can pay for it in credit card. You can pay for it, you know, whatever you want. And you message the bot back and say, one, two, three, four, five, that's what I want. And they send you a link. Click on the link, pay the thing. And now jmp.chat has their money. So they give you, they, uh, they take the DID and they start sending messages to whatever chat handle you provided. Now, there's a couple of things that are particularly cool about that. The first is, you notice nowhere in that description of how you sign up was a, and then you fill out the form with your name and address and social security number and firstborn child and all of the things. Doesn't exist. They literally just ask you for the username where you want all of the stuff delivered. Second of all, all the configuration, and I do mean all of the configuration that happens on jmp.chat is done through the bot. So you want to change, you want to deliver your calls through a SIP through a, a SIP address, which they provide, you uh, hit the option to reset your SIP credentials, and then they message you SIP credentials, and you can use it that way. You want to do it through Jabber? You can do that. You want to forward it to another phone so you can have take calls on your cell phone? You can do that. They don't care. Uh, and you want to take SMS? They just send them to you to whatever username you have. So the if if you follow all that and put the pieces of the puzzle together, by combining the services of aria-net.org and jmp.chat, you can, for two ninety nine a month, get a phone number that will deliver calls via uh, via SIP and text messages via Matrix or XMPP. And what that means is you can port your number over there and require only an internet connection to communicate with the rest of the world. No more, I forgot my phone at home, I have to turn around because my boss is going to call me or my client is going to call me or my friend's wedding and whatever it is, it doesn't matter. It's just find a different device and sign into it. And so uh, our whole family has kind of moved over and, and, and ported all of our numbers and, and gotten everything moved over to jmp.chat. We're absolutely loving it. I think the thing that really sold on uh, most of my family on it was when we got we got to the point where my, my wife goes, so you're telling me that I can separate the endpoint from the thing I give to everybody else. I just give the phone number out and they treat it just like they would any other phone number. But on the backside, I can take I can respond to that however I want. I can respond to it from my laptop. I can pick any phone up that has an Internet connection, whether or not it has Google Play, whether or not I'm signed in, whether or not I have and just download an app and sign into a SIP app or a messaging app. I said, yeah, that's basically how it works. So it's been absolutely fantastic. So a huge, huge, huge thank you to places like Aria-Net. The, the thing is, I know from running a company that this is the kind of stuff that sounds great. Like, oh, wouldn't it be great if we had a public Bifrost bridge that bridged XMPP to Matrix? And then I also have been on the other side of it where we go to try to do some of those things. Like, wow, this is really expensive and time invasive. And so the fact that there are companies out there that do this and then they partner with other great companies that are providing services like JMP.chat means that you can truly have an anonymous phone number that you can receive calls or send text messages from absolutely fantastic. So huge plug to aria-net and jmp.chat. There'll be links for both of those in the show notes. From the Linux Newswire newsroom, this is the Week in Review with JT. There were several releases of Note this past week, starting with Ubuntu releasing their 2004.4 LTS. Alma Linux 8.5 now has PowerPC builds available for those wanting to run Alma Linux on Power CPUs. GNOME has released its beta of GNOME 42, and Linux Mint Debian Edition 5 has also released its beta. Torvalds has stated that he's a bit worried about the next Linux build because the pace of development is going slower than expected. In other kernel news, one of the kernel devs has proposed removing RiserFS from the Linux kernel. 
RiserFS has been stuck on version 3 for around 15 years, and although there have been proposals for Riser 4 and even Riser 5, development has not been moving forward. GitHub has decided to open its security database to the public to encourage the effort towards, as they say, crowdsourcing the open source security problem. GitHub's advisory database is now open to contributions, and all information will be released under the Creative Commons license. In startup news, the test automation company Test Sigma has secured $4.6 million in seed funding for developing open source test automation DevOps workflows. And lastly, Red Hat has joined the Magma Core Foundation at the premier level and hopes to further open source mobile packet core. Our introduction to getting started with storage has been a huge success. I think, Steve, you said that when you got when you opened up the feedback this week, you looked at it and went, man, I can't believe how many people were grateful and wrote in to say that they appreciated that segment. Yeah, I was kind of surprised because oftentimes it gets a mention while people are asking their question if they've liked something. In this case, we got uh, more feedback that was just like, hey, like the section. And that was all that was in the email. Um, I haven't seen anything like that since I have started with the Ask Noah show doing the mail. I don't know. How long have I been doing the mail? A long time. No lo- probably longer than people realize because you were doing the mail long before you were ever on the show. We're doing stuff on the show uh, and, and organizing it and, and putting it in and, and responding to people and, and being kind and, and of service that way. So probably a lot longer than people realize. But uh, your voice has been heard and we're absolutely going to do a second segment. So we're going to invite Linux Ninja back and we're going to do a second segment on storage. If you didn't catch our segment on storage and go make sure to go catch up on part one introduction to storage. We start with the basics. We start with the drives and work our way through. But We've got a lot more coming up. We're going to talk about network attached storage, uh, storage area networks. We're going to talk about storage types. We're going to talk about RAID designs, and then we're, we're going to talk about ZFS, and we're going to put it all into practice. We're also going to talk about why Linux Ninja doesn't like B3FS and what B3FS is and what a B3FS uh, file system is. So all of that will come up on part two of our storage section. But tonight, what we want to focus on is getting started with a home lab. There are people out there and they, they've listened to this episode. They go, man, that's really fantastic. I would love to get started with storage. I would love to have uh, uh, data sets that I can work with and I can have them all backed up and all of that. But I don't even I don't have a lab. I don't have servers. I don't have anything at my house to get started. So I guess what do I what do I need to get started? So, Steve, if if you had a family member or a friend and they came over to your house and they, they walked down into your new soundproof room. They look at all the things down there and they said, man, this is really fantastic. This is really what I want. I want to be able to own my own data and have everything sitting right here in my house. And when the internet goes out, I don't want anything bad to happen. Where does that person get started? Where do you start with a home lab? I guess it would depend on what you're actually trying to achieve, right? So owning your own data could be making sure that I have good backups for my pictures. It could be um, running your own web server, your own matrix server. I I think you're crazy if you do that, but you could do that. Um, It really depends on what you're trying to achieve. So why don't we kick around a couple of ideas? So maybe, maybe you're trying to just get a handle on making sure that whatever backup service you're using, whether it's Google and their supposedly unlimited photos, which always, you know, 
every time somebody offers unlimited anything, it gets retracted eventually. So maybe you're you're in one of those situations where your backup service has has changed its terms, you don't like it anymore, whatever. For something like this, um, you need a sync client, and there are a couple of, of really, let's say, mainstream options. I know that Noah, you like you like sync thing. I do I like sync thing. And so that is an option where you run a client on whatever devices you need to um, have data elsewhere. I, I hesitate to call it a backup because I'm, I'm sure anybody who's listening to this show has heard our f- other friends of the show like Alan Jude or, or Jim Salter um, say, if you don't have three copies, it's not a backup. And I right. wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly subscribe to that. So same thing is not a backup. It's not a backup, but it can provide extra copies. And from there, you can do actual um, backups on it. So it's the same thing with Nextcloud. I use Nextcloud. Noah uses SyncThing. But anyways, the point is some sort of project to move your data from a, a device into a central location. So let's let, let's start with this. Why isn't making a bunch of copies of the data a backup. So uh, like I I do use SyncThing, I use Cfile a little bit more on a daily basis. So I have Cfile installed. All my files replicate basically immediately as I change them and it, let's say it syncs to 15 different computers. So what could possibly go wrong? Well, if you have a an errant file or you made a change that you didn't want to actually do, like you hit save and you're like, "Oh man, I didn't mean to do that cuz I accidentally deleted something." that save gets pushed out to all of the all of the places. Mm. Now there there are things like Nextcloud and I'm not sure if um if Cfile does the same thing with revisions. Mm-hmm. Um revisions are helpful. Uh but revisions rely upon some form of database. Like these applications have a database for doing the tracking and if that gets hosed, your revision history goes out the window and then you oftentimes have a hard time tracking back which version of the file that you needed. So uh, it's helpful. It will definitely save you in the moment, but it, it isn't the same thing as making sure that your data is safe. So ideally you have three copies. And in my world, this is my personal opinion, two of them are hot copies like online and one of them is disconnected. Mm. And what that prevents is... Uh, if I'm overwriting it with a sync, if the server crashes, if you've got like um, a an electrical surge that fries electronics, anything like that um, can can basically hose your entire strategy. So I I have two external hard drives, and while this doesn't protect against fire, um, I have two external hard drives that sit on top of the servers that are completely unplugged. They're not plugged into power. They're not plugged into USB until I intentionally go and turn them on and run the backups. Um, and that just makes sure that I have I have a stupid amount of redundancy in my backups. And I'm still going to miss something, I'm sure. But I use Nextcloud to kind of push things around in my network. So my net my desktop or laptop has Nextcloud running on it, and that syncs to my NAS. And then my NAS has uh, SpiderOak, which syncs out to the cloud, and my laptop has um, IceDrive. And then on top of that, I have two external 
hard drives that do the cold backup. So it's on my desktop, it's on my laptop, it's in two places in the cloud, and it's in two places on physical hard drives outside of my um, ZFS pool that does backups and checksumming and all that kind of stuff. So, so I want to circle back to that a little bit, but before I do, I want to kind of side sidebar with you. Do you trust the online backups from the standpoint of, I kind of operate off the assumption that any encryption I use, no matter how strong it is, no matter how secure it is, at some point is going to be rendered worthless because computing power gets easier every day and cheaper every day and algorithms get less effective every day. And so, you know, at some point, somebody will have a copy of that data that will be decryptable, or at least that's the assumption I work off of. Is that uh, is my tinfoil hat a little too tight, or is that is or is there a concern there? I guess it depends on what your threat vector is. For me, uh, I am trying not to be the low hanging fruit. Yeah, you you know what? Maybe I get ta- uh, targeted by someone malicious that's highly skilled. I I don't like the term hacker, but. You know, someone highly skilled is going to target me. A cracker. A cracker, sure. That that just sounds weird. That reminds me of MNN. But, but that uh, is the technical definition. A hacker is but a computer enthusiast. That's true. Um, so my attack vector is if somebody breaches whatever service, whether I, I didn't secure my firewall and, and you know, NextCloud had a serve like a hole in it or whatever, it's to protect me against that sort of thing. So you dump it and like I back up my ID but my ID is GPG encrypted. So, yep, have at it. And if you really like, if you're really going to go after me, there's probably very little that I can actually do uh, because there are all kinds of places that, despite what kind of best practices I have, they make you send something over email or, you know, um, if they're really targeting me, it, it just takes finding a link, in, like a broken link in the chain. So, you know, I, I really feel like if someone's actually targeting you, there is very little you can do against someone who's determined. So all you can do is just, it's like locking the door. Mm. People can just smash the window and come through your house. Like yep. you just do what you can to keep all the doors locked. Okay. How about this? Is there, are, are there data sets or collection of data that you say, this is like this stuff I'm fine with. If it, if it came out, it wouldn't be the end of the world. It would just be a, a huge inconvenience or a huge problem or uh, a potential threat. And then this stuff, I absolutely wouldn't want it to fall into the hands of another human being, period. And so I just won't, I'll keep that offline. Does that, is that a scenario for you at all or not so much? No, I don't really have a scenario like that. Um, again, because if they're really going to target me, they're going to find a way to do it anyway. So I do keep the cold storage, but at the same time, I just don't, I don't know what it is that, that if you're that determined, what, what kind of information that I would have that, that would save me, I suppose, Mm. you know? So I follow generally kind of the same, uh, rule. Uh, let me ask you this. What software or what process do you use for making the duplications of the data? So all the stuff goes onto your NAS or your computer, or whatever it is. How do you make the three copies? So I, I have Nextcloud that does the syncing and it syncs my desktop and my laptop um, as well as the pictures off my phone. I have rsync for the data drives because so in, in a uh, fit of paranoia each one of the drives has a different type of file system so i've I've actually got b3fs on one drive i've got um xfs on another and then zfs is on the hot spare and so 
Um, I do rsync between the various devices once it hits the NAS. And so I use Nextcloud to do all that syncing to get it to the NAS in the first place. So I use rsync exclusively. Everything comes off of my what I call endpoints or PCs, and I have a lot of them. Uh, and it all syncs to one central drive. And then from there, that drive gets backed up. And so I have what I call data paths. And so there's one for, there's a family path, which is all of our family media, anything the kids save, anything my wife saves. There is the ultra speed path, which includes anything from our client stuff. So we have encrypted client backups and they're backed up. They have their own process of getting backed up within UltraSpeed, but then because ultimately it's my butt and I have to be the one sitting in front of the client telling him we lost something, that entire path terminates with a path into my own backup strategy. And then all of those come together into a, a disk array that is in a Pelican case. And so once a month, I take the various different paths and bring them to a undisclosed location, plug in the Pelican case, fire everything up, and rsync from the individual data tracks down to the the final resting spot. And then that is stored off-site and completely offline. And uh, I think, I mean, I, I could be wrong, and maybe I'll point something out, but I, I think that that, keeps me pretty safe. I'm, I can survive a building burning down. I can survive a natural disaster. I went through the 97 flood here in North Dakota where everybody just, the National Guard showed up at your door, knocked on it and said, get out. You've got 10 minutes and you grabbed what you could and you got in your car and you drove away and you didn't come back for four months. Uh, I lived through that. So uh, so it, it, it shaped the way I think about how I'm going to be prepared for a disaster and I feel like I'm I'm sitting pretty well. So I would say if you if you're looking to get started, uh, I would start with some sort of a NAS, uh, some sort of a file server. And the reason that I say that is because it gets you experience in a couple of things. First of all, you get the networking side. You also get the data side. And that's really what everything else branches off from. Yes, you can have a Plex server, but at some point you have to have media and the media. If you don't have backup and storage in place, then that's kind of a non-starter, and you could do uh, Kubernetes or Home Assistant, but again, all of those have configuration files and stuff, and if you don't have a process for backing up your data, then that kind of falls apart. So it's kind of a nice place to start. Where am I going to store all of the stuff? And the other thing I would add to that, or a tip I would add to that, is think about the longevity of your data. So this is something I always tell clients, and I definitely tell my family this. If you're going to store something, store it in the simplest way possible. The text files that I have from the 90s and uh, early 90s, I can still open them all because text files are still available. JPEGs are still available. You know that that program that did all the genealogy that was really great back in 1987 and came on, you know, five and a quarter inch floppies? Yeah, that program and its data, not so useful to me anymore. Yeah, I, I concur with the, with the starting with the NAS, which is kind of why I thought about going down that route. I like TrueNAS for the UI, um, particularly if you're beginning and you want to expand your knowledge in the future with things like iSCSI. It gives you a really easy way of delving into the different types of file sharing that you can do, like NFS or Samba or iSCSI and so on. Um, and it really gives you a nice walkthrough I remember having to learn all the iSCSI stuff for my REL exams, and it's a lot of typing and a lot of gobbledygook unless you really understand what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And the, the TrueNAS UI gives you a nice kind of easy on-ramp into that, and so I like it for that. Yeah, I completely agree. The, the, um, the, I, I would close with this. I, 
Long term, I think I'm probably going to move closer and closer towards ZFS on Linux. And my rationale for that is OpenZFS is based on Linux. And I have to believe that there's a reason that even IX Systems is basing um, their 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 uh, their new branch of TrueNAS on a Linux distro. It's the industry just mo- seems to be moving that direction. And so native ZFS on Linux seems like not a bad way to go. I will miss the nice little web UI, though, because that is gives you a nice launching point. Hey, the music in our ears means we're out of time. If you enjoyed the episode, then please go over to podcast.asnoahshow.com. Check out the show notes. You'll get so much more out of it. We have all of the articles that we use to build and do the show over there. Uh, you can catch the entire back catalog. We'll be back next Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central at asnoahshow.com. Have a good week. Have a good week.